Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For weeks now, Germany has been accused of dragging its feet on introducing sanctions against the Russian government. EU finance ministers have been meeting today in Paris to discuss further sanctions against Russia. Germany is under increasing pressure to drop its opposition to cutting off Russia's access to the swift money transfer system. But despite a reliance on Russia for its energy supplies, Germany has changed its mind. Chancellor Olaf Scholz met leaders from Poland and Lithuania to discuss imposing tougher sanctions against Russia on top of measures already announced by the European Union and the United States. Racked by decades of war guilt, Germany has always resisted building up its military. But will that have to change now? If the German armed forces were called upon to defend Europe against Russia, they wouldn't be able to do it. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, how the Ukraine crisis has changed Germany's place in the world. In the past, Germany has seemed reluctant to match other members of the EU in taking action against Putin. The country's energy supply and its long cultural ties to Russia didn't leave Chancellor Schultz much room to manoeuvre. But all of that changed at the weekend, as the Times Berlin correspondent Oliver Moody explains. On Sunday, there was an extraordinary session in the Bundestag in the light of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And Olaf Scholz, the German Chancellor, stood up to give a speech. And initially, I didn't think very much of it because nobody voted for Olaf Scholz because of his rhetoric. That's not a criticism. I mean, saying he's a bad speaker is a bit like saying Roy Keane is a bad pianist. It's just not what he's there for. But he started speaking and my ears pricked up and he said, um, Wir erleben eine Zeitenwende. Und das bedeutet, die Welt danach ist nicht mehr dieselbe wie die Welt davor. We're living through a watershed era. And that means that the world afterwards will no longer be the same as the world before. The issue at the heart of this is whether power is allowed to prevail over the law, whether we permit Putin to turn back the clock to the 19th century and the age of the great powers, or whether we have it in us to keep warmongers like Putin in check. That requires strength of our own. And those words might sound quite normal coming from 
a British or a Polish prime minister, but from a German chancellor. That is really extraordinary language. And what he turned out to mean by strength of our own was a one-off investment of 100 billion euros in modernizing and upgrading Germany's military, and then increasing annual defense spending to more than 2% of um, GDP, which is that magic number that, that's sort of expected of NATO members, which Germany hasn't hit since the end of the Cold War. Was the rest of Germany prepared for the announcement, though? How did it go down? First litmus test was the Bundestag debate that followed Scholz's speech, where the largest opposition party, formerly Angela Merkel's um, Christian Democrats, were full of praise. In fact, the only thing that they could find to fault Scholz on was that he was going to have to borrow lots of money to fund all of this spending and that that would violate the uh, constitutional limits on government debt. The only really sort of serious objections came from the political fringes, from Die Linke, which is a kind of Corbyn-y leftist party, and from the Alternative for Deutschland, better known as the AFD, the far right. It really did feel like an about turn because this certainly isn't how Germany was handling the Ukraine crisis even a couple of weeks ago. I mean, if you rewind the clock by um, two or three weeks, you had Germany not only refusing to send armaments to Ukraine, but also blocking the Netherlands and Estonia from doing so too. You had Germany refusing to even say the words Nord Stream 2, the most controversial public infrastructure mm. project in Europe, with all due respect to the A303 around Stonehenge. <laughs> and you had Germany constantly emphasising the refrain of every diplomatic option for dialogue needing to be exhausted without, in the view of a lot of NATO allies, paying enough attention to deterrence. I mean, how did that approach go down in Germany? So surveys have continually shown that the German public does not favour a assertive approach towards Russia, that two thirds of German voters wanted to see the Nord Stream 2 pipelines enter operation, and that up to three quarters of them opposed sending weapons to Kyiv. So the government up until last week was absolutely doing what the electorate seemed to expect of it. And just explain a little bit about why was there such a, a reluctance to act against Russia? On Angela Merkel's desk when she was Chancellor was a portrait of the 18th century Russian Empress Catherine the Great, who was really German. She was born Countess Sophie of Anhalt-Herbst in, in what's now southeastern Germany, and she sort of schemed and assassinated her way um, to the top of the tree in Moscow. And if you go back over the past three centuries of German-Russian relations, they have been extremely brutal and extremely violent at times, but also so close economically. Mm. You had so many Germans who played foundational roles in the Russian Empire under Nicholas II, the Tsar in the 19th century, his interior minister was a German, the head of his secret police was a German, his foreign minister was a German. The Russian word for mine, Schachter, comes from the German word Schacht because the Russians hired so many German mining engineers. There's such a deep historical sense of kinship between oh, the amazing. two countries 
that the atrocious events of the middle of the 20th century never quite succeeded in erasing. And then on top of that, you have the fact that until 1989, about a quarter of Germany's landmass was under Russian control. And you also had the West of Germany believing itself to be in a very kind of special relationship with uh, the USSR compared to the rest of the West, because it was pursuing this policy known as Ostpolitik of detente, that a lot of left-wing Germans still see as the biggest reason why the Berlin Wall fell. It feels like distant history sometimes now, but you know there will be a lot of people who lived through that in Germany. How much is that still a part of life? You know, the memory of the country having splits, of the memory of East Berlin, the memory of people in Germany growing up learning Russian. It was only thirty years ago, so for more than half yeah. of the population, they have living memories of what it was like to be on either side of that wall. To give an example, Angela Merkel grew up with Russian as her second language. And for a lot of people of her generation in East Germany, Russia was the cultural point of relevance. But also on the other side of the wall, particularly among um, Olaf Scholz's party, the Social Democrats, there's also that sense of Germany being the only country in the West that ever really understood Russia, that ever really knew how to play Russia properly and how to conduct diplomacy with the Russians in a really effective way. So oddly enough, both sides of that Cold War divide feel that they had um, a very special relationship with Moscow. And Oliver, what's happened, you know, post the Berlin Wall coming down, post reunification? Since then, Germany has become more and more dependent on Russia for not just gas, but also for coal and for oil. And that energy dependency has brought Germany a lot of benefits. It's a country that has very high electricity bills, but it's also managed to protect Germany against a lot of the fluctuations in the energy markets that have hurt households in other European countries so much recently. I mean, just how dependent is Germany on Russia? So at the time we're speaking now, Germany gets about 55% of its natural gas, 45% of its coal, and 40% of its oil from Russia. Wow. Without that, presumably, you know, there is a genuine fear that lights would go off. Without that, some analysts have suggested that household heating bills could treble or quadruple, that there could be rolling blackouts, that petrol prices could double. It would be exceptionally painful at any rate. And you mentioned Nord Stream 2, and you know it's been popping up in headlines for, for weeks now. Just talk us through that project and, and why it matters. In the 1970s, a large part of this policy of um, detente between Germany and Russia that we've been talking about involved building these vast pipelines connecting Russian gas fields with Germany by way of Ukraine. And since then, they've been expanded and expanded. You've had a new one come online through Belarus and Poland called Yamal. And under the last chancellor, but two, Gerhard Schröder, you had one directly from Russia to Germany under the Baltic called Nord Stream. And we're now on to the latest iteration of this phenomenon, Nord Stream 2, which follows pretty much the same route as the original Nord Stream pipelines from Russia to Germany, but which would effectively double Germany's 
direct natural gas imports from Russia. So it bypasses Ukraine. It was built last year. It's been um, awaiting regulatory approval since September. That's been kind of suspended in limbo, despite appeals from pretty much all of Germany's closest Western allies to abolish it. And finally, last week, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor, said that the regulatory certification was being suspended. So the pipeline won't come online for the foreseeable future. So a really big moment. I mean, you're right, you know, the Western allies, we'd heard America very openly talking about it. Britain had mentioned it. You know, there was real pressure on Germany not to let it go ahead because there was a sense that Russia would become, you know, they would become so dependent on Russia, it'd be very hard to stand up against them if they needed to. What was the reaction in Germany, though? I mean, was Nord Stream 2 and the idea of it popular? And what was the sense when it was all frozen? Nord Stream 2 is tremendously popular, or at least it was before the invasion. There was one poll a few weeks ago that found 67% of the public in Germany wanted it to go ahead. So that's the kind of tide that the government has found itself swimming against. And if you're going to be cynical about it, you could look at it this way. Olaf Scholz, until very recently, wouldn't even say the words Nord Stream 2 in public because the issue was so difficult. And then really? he went to Washington. He was asked about it. He wouldn't address it directly. So Joe Biden stepped in and did it for him. If Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the, uh, the, the border of Ukraine again, then... Uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream two. We we will bring an end to it. So in a sense, Schultz's decision had already been made for him by the Americans. He'd indicated mm. that he was up for it, in theory, but he hadn't quite committed himself to it publicly. It was a question of timing, and the fact that he announced the suspension of the pipelines before the invasion turned that necessity into something that looked almost like leadership. He got ahead of the game. And so it looked like a bold move rather than just Germany kind of being cowed into submission. From your description, clearly there is a massive reliance on, on Russia for energy of all sorts. Does Germany have a plan for what it does if all of that sort of comes to an end? Germany has two plans. Ah, uh -huh. <laughs> always prepared. It's got a long-term plan, which is that by 2030, it wants to generate 80% of its electricity from renewables. So over the next eight, nine years, the um, emphasis is going to be very much on gas being a transitional fuel. Does Germany have a short-term plan? That's harder to work out because the government insists that it can get by without Russian gas. However, it does make up about one-eighth of Germany's total energy consumption, a considerably large proportion of its electricity generation. It can get some of it in terms of extra imports from Norway, but it doesn't crucially have yet liquefied natural gas terminals, which would be the most kind of obvious alternative route. So it would really struggle to replace that Russian gas, at least in the short term. It's not going to run out of gas, but the household energy bills could increase absolutely enormously if Russia turns the taps off. Wow which will obviously change the popularity of all of these moves, I suppose. Beyond the energy and beyond the sense of bills suddenly skyrocketing, is there a, a residual cultural sense of feeling for, for Russia in all of this? I mean, we talked about the, the lengthy historical bonds. How do people there feel about 
what Russia is doing at the moment. There's been really striking when you listen to Schultz talk or when you listen to Annalena Baerbock, his foreign minister talk over the past few days, the sense of an almost personal betrayal. The fact that Germany has taken mm. so much flack from its allies, the fact that Germany has been absolutely hauled over the coals by the English-speaking media, the fact that it had sunk so much political capital and annoyed so many of its neighbours by trying to keep Russia at the negotiating table. And all along, Russia had just been intending to invade Ukraine, as, as we now know. The whole process of diplomacy was a charade. And I really think that that sense of closeness to Russia has almost become inverted. It's made Schultz's coalition extraordinarily angry that this kind of trust and this, this sense of a special relationship has just been totally trashed almost overnight. So weirdly, I think it's that sort of that history that has helped to fuel a lot of the very kind of emotional response and the very rapid transformation of mm. um, Germany's policy that we've seen over the past week. Coming up, if Angela Merkel was still in charge, would she have been able to avert the crisis in Ukraine? But first... I'm Matthew Campbell, Foreign Features Editor at The Sunday Times. I've always had a hunger for news, finding out things about parts of the world away from the beaten track. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And Oliver, for a lot of us watching, this was sort of the first test, really, of, of Olaf Scholz on, on the world stage and in a crisis of this sort. Were people in Germany, you know, are they are they pleased with how he's responded? Is there a sense that if Angela Merkel had still been in charge, would all of this have been quite different? 
I think the key factor here is neither Schultz nor Merkel. It's the German Green Party. I wasn't expecting that. Who have been making these points, not just about Russia, not just about Nord Stream 2, but about Germany needing to stand on its own two feet and be a better ally to the US, to be a country that contributes more to NATO, to be, in a word, a, a kind of normal Western country. And now they control the, the foreign and the business ministries, which are two of the absolutely central portfolios in Germany's response to the Ukraine crisis. And so what I think we're seeing now isn't so much a kind of Damascene conversion with Saul of Tarsus being knocked off his horse in a flash of light. What we're seeing is this green argument now kind of carrying the day, becoming irresistible and the politics shifting so dramatically in the light of this um, outrage that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has provoked, that it's now possible to make these arguments and sound sane rather than like you're just trying to undermine the entire tradition of German foreign and security policy. Because Angela Merkel had been in power for so long and was obviously such a, a, a big figure across Europe, there was always a sense that when she met Vladimir Putin, you know, there was a bit of sparring sometimes. You know, you could tell that he was impressed enough to want to try to catch her out. Is there a sense that she might have had more influence over him, though? Is there any way that she might have been able to avert some of this? The really key moments for Merkel in this context was in 2014 after Russia annexed Crimea and sent covert military support to the two separatist republics in the Donbass. And it was Merkel who sat down at a negotiating table in Minsk opposite Vladislav Surkov, kind of one of Putin's closest aides, and mm. just negotiated through the night, day after day, relentlessly to try and ward off what would probably otherwise have been the crushing military defeat of the Ukrainian state and to come up with some kind of ceasefire arrangement. And she did it. And so she has had this kind of aura around her ever since as a kind of Putin whisperer who can resolve these conflicts to the point where even the kind of far left party has been saying during this Russia crisis, you know what, we've had enough of Olaf Scholz, let's just get Angela Merkel back in and she can be the West's point woman, you know, kind of fetch her out of retirement from her yes. country home. Your, your time is now. Would she have made any difference? Is that in... on the horizon? It's not. Would she do it? It's not. She wouldn't. She, she wouldn't even utter her thoughts publicly on the invasion until she absolutely had to. Would she have made any difference? I think we know now pretty clearly that Putin had been set on invasion months before he recognised the independence of the, of the Luhansk and um, Donetsk People's Republics. I don't think that there is anything that any German or indeed any other Western leader could have done that would have deflected him from his course. And Oliver, you mentioned earlier this huge increase now that has come in defence spending in Germany just overnight, uh, 100 billion euros, which is an astonishing figure. Could you just give us a sense of context of, of how that compares to how much Germany would normally spend? I mean, how, how big a change is that? One kind of important piece of context to give you here before we get into the numbers is um, that one of the many pennies that has dropped over the past week is just the sheer dilapidation of, of Germany's armed forces, which is known as the Bundeswehr, to the point where on the morning when Russia invaded Ukraine, the head of the German army wrote publicly on LinkedIn of all the social networks that he was, and I quote, pissed off 
that he'd been trying to tell Germany's political leaders for years that the military was not in a fit state to fulfil its commitments to NATO and that it just wasn't up to its constitutional task. And one of the key realisations that sunk in during this crisis is that if the German armed forces were called upon to defend Europe against Russia, they wouldn't be able to do it. That They've lost so many personnel and pieces of hardware since the end of the Cold War. You know, 94% of their battle tanks, 67% of their personnel, something like 75% of their submarines. And the equipment that they have got is, in a lot of cases, just not operational. So Schultz isn't just kind of modernising and upgrading the military here. He's rescuing it from Mm. what people now recognise as a really parlous and frankly embarrassing state. So that 100 billion euros figure, that is just over twice what Germany would typically spend on its entire military, including kind of salary and administration in a year. But more significantly than that, Germany is now going to hit the 2% uh, of GDP military expenditure target that is expected of NATO members. That'll be the first time, I think, since the early 1990s that it's done that. That is a remarkable change. Will it work? I mean, I I spoke to a a German general some years ago who sort of said, everyone keeps asking us to spend more on defence, but the problem is... Even when we do, it's you can't recruit Germans to come and join the military because there's still such a big historical legacy of the world wars. There's such a, a reluctance to be seen as doing anything martial and militaristic that it doesn't matter how much we offer, people don't want to do the job. Has something changed in the German culture, do you think, that will allow that 100 billion to go to good use? First of all, it's patently not going to work overnight. There are very obvious gaps in Germany's capabilities that it could plug with that money. For example, it wants to buy armed drones from Israel, which would be the first ones the Bundeswehr's ever had, which would be a kind of significant hole in its military operations that it could fill. Another thing that's a really critical priority is that there are about 20 American nuclear warheads on an airbase in Buchel in southwest Germany. And those are supposed to be delivered if it does come to a nuclear war in Europe by a fleet of extremely elderly tornado jets. Those really urgently need to be replaced. So that's one of the things that this this 100 billion is going to get spent on as a matter of urgency. In terms of the recruitment issue, your general was, I think, demonstrably right in that um, for some time yet now, the German army has been missing its recruitment targets. But there has also been, I think, a bit of a cultural shift in that The Germans had been in Afghanistan until the withdrawal last year for, I think, 17 or 18 years. They've been in Mali. They've been carrying out training missions and reconnaissance missions in Syria. There's been a sense in which Germany kind of quietly deploying military force has become normalised to the point where you now see recruitment adverts um, for the Bundeswehr at railway stations or on the underground, which would have been pretty unusual five or ten years ago. This isn't going to be something that gets fixed within six months or a year or two years. But by the end of the decade, we could certainly see the German military being a very different proposition to what it is today. There is a sense that in the last week or two, it already feels like the world has shifted. Something has changed. Tectonic plates are shifting. Is there a sense that with this increase in defence spending, by sort of meeting NATO targets for the first time in decades... 
Is Germany growing into a new role? So there was a lovely remark from the Oxford-educated former Polish Foreign Minister Radek Sikorski a few years ago. He said that the only thing he feared more than German action now was German inaction. And there is a sense in which Germany's European allies have been looking to it with increasing impatience for more than a decade to take on the leading role in Europe and to turn Europe into some kind of strategically capable entity that could just look after itself and, and you know free America up to concentrate on the balance of power in the Pacific, that could just take care of its own stuff. And Germany's absolutely central to that. And for so many years, essentially, the answer to Sikorsky's challenge has been profound circumspection and cautiousness and a lack of sense of what Germany wanted to do with its own power and what it wanted Europe to do with its power. What we're now seeing in parallel is a sense of a much more active, a much more normal, in Western terms, Germany, combined with a European Union that has just suddenly found its sense of mission overnight to the point where it's spending 450 million euros buying weapons for a country that isn't even an EU member, that's caught up in an active conflict with Russia, to the point where the EU turns out to have a strategic reserve of fighter jets. So um, yes, who knew? I think these two things really have to be taken in tandem. You've got um, a Germany that's finding its sense of purpose and you have a, a European Union that might finally be finding its own sense of purpose. And if those two things align, then that could be one of the most significant geopolitical legacies of the Ukraine crisis. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times Berlin correspondent, Oliver Moody. You can read all of Oliver's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If you'd like to know how you can help the people of Ukraine, do take a look at the link in the description of this episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a review. It'll help others to find it. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.